Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 147 for the second half of September 2016. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the hollow Earth, according to David Icke. I recently appeared on the wildly successful and popular Cognitive Dissonance podcast, episode 313. They even named the episode Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy. I was on for about 25 minutes to discuss chapter 12 of David Icke's 1999 book, The Biggest Secret. The hosts had offered me a spot to discuss really any chapter that they had yet to read, and I selected 12 because it seemed to have the most, beyond the introduction, to do with this podcast. However, we ended up focusing instead on Nazis and reptilians and stuff like that, instead of the science part of the chapter, The Hollow Earth. And so, because I spent so much time reading David Icke's utter drivel, poorly phrased nonsense and unsighted suppositions, I'm dedicating this episode to an in-depth look at the four pages where David Icke pretends that he knows what he's talking about. At least so far as the structure of Earth is concerned, as opposed to everything else where he just makes stuff up. Long-time listeners of the podcast may be wondering what happened to the normal, calm, and measured Stuart. I usually save my strong words like drivel and nonsense for private conversation, but David Icke is among those very, very few that brings out angry Stuart, and you don't want to see me when I'm angry. But perhaps a bit more seriously, David Icke is probably up there among the best-known peddlers of nonsense out there, and so I think that it's a reasonable assumption on my part that most listeners to this podcast have heard of him, and so I can forego the pretense of him being really perhaps misguided in some aspects of his thought process and just get right down to it and say that he's full of it. If you want to know why, listen to Cognitive Dissonance for really any episode in the last few months because they've been going chapter by chapter through his 1999 book, or you can take a look at really pretty much any skeptic-minded resource such as Rational Wiki, to which I'll link to in the show notes. He's perhaps best known for thinking that the TV series V and its 2009 reboot are real, but in reality, David Icke has a trait that authors such as J.K. Rowling possess. They are able to take pretty much any fantasy, any fable, and somewhat seamlessly tie it into their mythology. I think that's one of the primary reasons that David Icke has risen to the level that he has among the alternative crowd. He takes every bit of New Age, every conspiracy, every alternative idea, and is somehow able to work it into his broad mythological worldview in a big tent way that no one is left out. Therefore, he's not saying anyone is stupid, he's really incorporating it all. Because of that method and mindset, he was able to work in several of the different and really disparate things that I've talked about on this podcast and my blog before, including such different topics as Planet X, the Anunnaki, hyperdimensional physics in 19.5, and the topic of this episode, the Hollow Earth. Somehow, all tied together by reptilians. I want to begin this discussion by analyzing some of the way that David makes his arguments. As a research scientist myself, soon to be a senior research scientist due to a pending promotion, I'm used to citing my sources. If a paper I wrote has fewer than 10 references, I tend to get scared that someone's going to think that I plagiarized something. 
One paper that I'm currently working on has over 170 references, which, according to David Wilcock, is more than enough for a PhD thesis, but that's a separate podcast. This mentality is in marked contrast to David Icke's writing. Now, it's true that he does have some references, but most of his outlandish statements are just made as though they're common fact, and he has no reference. For example, he states, A number of researchers report that the Nazis established an underground base in Antarctica. Okay, that statement's not cited. Who are those researchers? Where and when did they say this? What were their sources? Or did they do the fieldwork themselves? Another example is that he states, The legends of inner earth peoples and blonde-haired, blue-eyed master races can be found in countless ancient cultures including China, Tibet, Egypt, India, Europe, the Americas, and Scandinavia. Such stories abound in every culture. Okay, fine. You're talking about fairy tales, but I'd still like to see the source. None was given. As a third example, he wrote, Tom Rich, a paleontologist at the Museum of Victoria, Australia, suggested this possibility that dinosaurs survived by living within the Earth, particularly in the southern polar regions, after he discovered the fossilized remains of a polar dinosaur in 1987 in an excavated tunnel in the southern tip of Victoria State in a place known as Dinosaur Cove. Okay, that seemed really interesting, and to be an objective claim that I could look into. And he cited his source in footnote 14. Footnote 14 only states, quote, John Rhodes, Reptoid Website, end quote. The reason that this is a problem is that you can never check his suppositions. He states a lot of things as fact without backing them up, or in the example I did give of him citing something, I think that we can all agree that a reptoid website is a questionable source for information about dinosaurs. When I did my own brief searching, I could find no legitimate source that discussed this claim about Tom Rich. This makes David somewhat untouchable, and it's something that I've noted if I ever happen to go rogue of not citing my sources. By just putting a bunch of stuff out there and not citing it, it makes you appear authoritative and people can't question your sources to see if they come to the same conclusions based upon the available data. Conclusions can always change, but unless there's fraud or flaws in the data gathering process, the data are the only objective part of the research. The second method of argument that he uses is the argument against authority and argument from or appeal to ridicule. David Icke's writings and speeches are replete with effectively saying, if someone in a position of authority says something, the opposite is true. Here's one example. Humans have become such puppets of the official line that to suggest the Earth is not solid to the core is to invite enormous ridicule. After all, isn't that at odds with what those highly intelligent scientists say? Yes, it is. Just as it was to suggest the Earth was round and not flat. When you research this subject, you realize how little evidence the scientists produce for their indisputable facts. They have penetrated only a few miles into the Earth, and their theories of what exists at deeper levels are just that, theories. When you ask a few questions of the official line, it is soon a stuttering wreck. The translation is that scientists say the Earth isn't hollow. Scientists have little evidence to back this up. If you start to probe them with detailed questions, they soon become a stuttering wreck, despite their indisputable facts. Therefore, everything they say is wrong and you should believe me. 
It's remarkably similar to at least one of the clips that I played of Eric Dubay in episode 145, this argument that if an authority figure says one thing, you should believe the opposite. It's also common on a lot of late-night paranormal radio shows, such as uh, Fade to Black, for example, where the host often says that if you listen or read the news, you should take what they say, turn it 180 degrees around, and that's what's likely to be true. Alright, with all that said, let's move on to some of his stated evidence for a hollow planet. About half of it is fully based upon conspiracy, speculation, anecdotes, and fictional writings. For example, the writer Jules Verne was a high initiate of the Secret Society Network with his connections to the Theosophical Society, the Order of the Golden Dawn, and the Order of the Oriental Templars. Therefore, he knew far more than the public were allowed to know, his science fiction stories were based on fact. In other words, this is actually quite clever, I think. By claiming that a fiction writer is part of a secret society, which David Icke does throughout all of his writings, he's then able to use that premise to say that the fictional writings are really based on fact. It's, as I said, really quite clever if remarkably trite. It also lacks any objective basis in fact, because even if he had a boatload of Nobel Prize winners in fields of science, all because they say something doesn't mean it's true. Just look at Linus Pauling and vitamin C, which I'll link to in the show notes if you want more information. As such, I'm not going to talk any more about it, which really throws away well over half of his arguments. One of the first actual sciency pieces of evidence that he claims is the very structure of how Earth forms and how gravity works, which is something that is common to many hollow Earth proponents. The very spin of the planet creates centrifugal force, which throws matter to the outside, very much like a spin dryer in which the clothes spin around a hole in the center. When the planet was in its molten form, spinning into existence before it cooled, how could it possibly remain solid in the core? It is against all logic and laws of force. As soon as David Icke gets a degree in physics, his claim that this is against all logic and laws of force I might take seriously. Until then, I'm perfectly confident stating he's wrong. That's not how things work when a large source of gravity is involved. But he thinks he knows how gravity works, as per this quote. People live on the other side of the very land that we live on. If you think that it is impossible, then ask why people in Australia don't fall off the Earth even though they are on the opposite side of the surface to those in the Northern Hemisphere. The answer is that they are pulled to the land by gravity. So are those who live inside the Earth. The force of gravity pulls towards the matter, and so those on both sides of the planet's landmass, inside and outside, will be pulled by gravity towards the land and neither will fall off. The center of the Earth's gravity is not at the core of the planet, but at about 400 miles down. The center of the outer landmass, and so gravity pulls equally on both sides. Whew. Okay. The 400 miles refers to the idea that he thinks the Earth's shell is about 800 miles thick. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. So let's get back to the big picture idea for how he thinks Earth formed and how he thinks gravity works. He thinks that Earth formed and it was spinning, and that it was the spinning that was so gosh darn fast that mass pushed outwards to form a sort of shell creating a hollow cavity inside because the gravity of the shell kept pulling things to it. He's wrong, for a couple of reasons. 
First, let's take his scenario to its logical conclusion. He pictures a spin clothes dryer or a washing machine that flings clothing to the outer part of the cylinder. If Earth formed that way, what's keeping things together? Why would Earth form at all in the first place instead of just flying apart? Put another way, the only reason that clothes in a clothes dryer stay in the dryer is that it's enclosed by something that is substantially stronger than the force of the spinning clothes. But if Earth is forming and spinning so fast that it somehow gets all of the material inside pushing against the shell, what keeps the shell in place? Why wouldn't the planet just cease to exist? Another reason that he's wrong is that the clothes spinning in a clothes dryer have pretty much zero mass relative to the centrifugal force, and they have no chemical or material bonds holding them together, and if you put a dryer sheet in, they won't even have electrical bonds in the form of static cling to keep them together. Earth is completely different, which you might have guessed given that it's a planet and not clothes in a clothes dryer. It has a huge amount of mass relative to its spin rate. The rocks and metal that make up the majority of the planet also have material strength that keeps them together. You would have to spin the planet completely in well under an hour to get any sort of centrifugal force overcoming the force of gravity and material strength. And, well, just for funsies, we can actually do sort of a back-of-the-envelope calculation for this. If we were to scale the clothes dryer analogy up, to Earth based on its mass and its speed, assuming that your average washing machine load is going to be maybe uh, 10 kilograms, 20 pounds of clothing, Earth weighs 6 times 10 to the 23rd power times more than that. But it's also maybe uh, 13 million times bigger than a clothes dryer, and a clothes dryer spins at about a thousand times per minute. Doing a rough, rough, very, very rough scaling calculation that may be off by a little bit, assuming that I'm reading the equations correctly because I haven't done this in a couple years, you would need to spin the Earth at roughly a few quadrillion, that's uh, about, what, 10 to the 12th power or so, times per minute in order to get the same effect as a clothes dryer given its mass and size, Um, something close to that. Even if I'm off by, I don't know, six orders of magnitude, you would still need to spin Earth at a couple million with an M times per minute in order to get this analogy to work. The third reason that David is wrong is that he doesn't know how gravity works. Think of it this way. You're on the uh, inner edge of Earth's hollow 600-mile-thick shell. You look up, and in the distance, you see the inner surface of the shell all around you, much, uh, much like the nether sphere in the season finale of Doctor Who in 2014. But here's the problem you would not be sticking to the surface under you due to gravity. Relatively speaking, there is almost zero force of gravity under your feet. All the material that you see above you, it it might be much farther away, but there is a huge amount of it compared to what's right underneath you. In fact, there is so much more above you that it immediately, well, at the speed of light anyway, overwhelms anything from right underneath you, and you would be pulled up towards the center of the planet. And when you get to the center point, there would be an equal amount of material all around you, and so after some oscillation back and forth, and if you assume that there's air or something that sort of slows that oscillation down, you would settle at the center point. That's how gravity works. That's why Earth is not hollow, and it would not form like a shell, and even if it did, 
nothing would stick to the inner surface of that shell. It would all be pulled towards the center. This is why astronomers and physicists, when they do calculations of planets and other things, they can approximate things as point bodies. In other words, the size of the body in most of these kinds of simulations doesn't have to be factored in. All that matters is really how much mass is there in that point, because it all acts as though the mass is concentrated at the center. This is a huge misunderstanding, and actually it's very common and pretty much at the core of every Hollow Earth version that I've seen, core, so to speak. Uh, So it's certainly not unique to David Icke, which is compounded by the fact that pretty much nothing is unique to David Icke, because as I explained earlier, he pretty much steals all his material from other people. A follow-up piece of evidence is that he presented a picture of a comet. Actually, not a picture, it's a drawing of a comet. The comet is Donati's Comet, which you probably have never heard of because it's from 1858. It's interesting that he didn't use any of the more recent comets that we have, you know, real decent pictures of. I say decent pictures because this comet was the first ever that was photographed. What I find interesting is that he selected a drawing of a comet made from Cambridge Observatory on October 1st, 1853. He doesn't actually say any of this. I had to look it up and find the image and find the history of it online because he doesn't cite his sources. What's interesting about this particular comet is that it was closest to Earth five years later in 1858. There are many drawings of the comet and photographs of the comet from 1858. The drawings from 1858 look completely different from the one from 1853. And when I was searching for a high-resolution digital scan of the image, interestingly, the top internet hits that I found were all from Hollow Earth components. Interesting. It's almost as though he kind of looked around to find the one out of dozens of images that kind of best supported his idea and used that. I'll have some of the images in the show notes, so I'm not going to try to describe a picture in this podcast. What's important is what David Icke says about it. If you look at figure 23, you will see from the drawing of Donati's Comet from 1853 how matter is hurled to the outside to spin around a bright core, or sun. The Earth is basically the same. Pretty much based on what I discussed on how gravity works, no. Earth is not basically the same, and comets also don't really work like that. Plus, I don't think the picture of the comet that David shows actually depicts what he thinks it does, and even if it did, his cherry-picked one image out of at least dozens that showed what he wanted, and even if it does show what he wanted, a sketch based on how people at the time thought that a comet looked and what its structure was does not mean that it reflects reality or that a model of a comet, even if that did reflect reality, is a good model for a planet. I think this is a good opportunity to pause a little bit from going through his evidence and discussing what he thinks the Earth's structure actually looks like. Perhaps the most basic part is that he thinks that Earth is a shell, and that it's about 800 miles thick, which is why I think that he said that the center of gravity is 400 miles down. As I explained in episode 8, way back when, uh, when I did discuss the hollow Earth before, that would pretty much require that the entire planet be made of material that's denser than the densest atoms that we know of, and we know that that's not the case. It's made a lot of rock and metal, and there's also air, and there's water, and people, and bugs, and, well, lots and lots of bugs, but anyway, that's not the case. 
Again, refer to episode 8 for a lot more on that as well as some math that I actually walk through to show this. The second most basic part of his model is that the planet has two holes, one at the South Pole and one at the North Pole, and I'm not going to get into the cognitive dissonance style of jokes here. We're just going to say that Earth has two holes, one at the top, one at the bottom, and it's through these that you access and enter the hollow interior. This doesn't create a problem for water because, remember, he thinks that gravity pulls things to the shell rather than the center of the planet, and so for him, water would just circulate inside and outside and back again. Of course, we track ocean currents, and there is absolutely zero evidence for this. But, you know, evidence never really bothered David Icke. He also said, The alleged openings at the poles make sense because the power of the centrifugal force in the period of formation would have been far less in those areas. Okay, except if the force is far less, then you wouldn't have any outward force and so you would never actually make a hole. So even if he were correct about how these forces work, which he's not, he would still be wrong about a hole forming. As for the size of the holes... These openings are an estimated 1,400 miles across, and around them is a magnetic ring. Alright, there are two things there. First off, 1,400 miles, that's what, maybe 2,000 kilometers? Assuming that these holes are centered at plus or minus 90 degrees latitude, that means the openings are at about, well, 79 degrees 54.8 minutes which means that a large chunk of Greenland shouldn't exist because it goes up to 85 degrees north, you know, well past 79 degrees north, not to mention the existence of Antarctica. And then there's 1,400 miles? <laughs> that's huge. Uh, that's just over half the length of the United States. It should be obvious on any map, any satellite image. How does he answer that? Conspiracy, of course. The entrances are covered by clouds most of the time, and advocates claim, and the airspace is restricted by law. Now, just to be fair, other proponents of the hollow earth will say that satellites will never image those parts of the globe, would-be globe, hollow globe, whatever, and uh, also, again, they bring in this idea that they're covered by clouds. And it's just wrong, and it's dumb. It's almost as though he's literally making up whatever he wants and saying it as though it's fact. Of course, many of the people that I address on this show do just that, so I really shouldn't be surprised. This is also a case where he should have some sort of citation to back up his claim, at least the one about the law. But there's nothing. Not even a Hollow Earth Conspiracy 101 website as a reference. The second part of two quotes ago was that he claims there's a magnetic ring around the holes. He adds to that, When explorers searching for the North or South Pole reach this magnetic ring, their compasses point straight down, and they believe they are at the pole. This is a man who clearly does not care about the intelligence of his readers, or he just assumes that they're really not intelligent at all. Nor does he seem to know how a compass works, nor does he show any evidence of knowing anything about Earth's magnetic field. Even if you're at a magnetic pole, your compass would not point down, it just wouldn't point anywhere. You're supposed to hold a compass parallel to the ground for it to work. It then spins around on an axis that's perpendicular to the ground so the compass is parallel to the ground. Holding it vertical is not how you use a compass. 
Besides this, Earth's magnetic poles do not correspond to its geographic poles. I covered this in episode 25 on magnetic pole shifts when I explained that Earth's magnetic poles not only move around, but they rarely have and rarely will coincide with Earth's spin axis poles. And along with that, we've mapped Earth's magnetic field really, really, really well. It's kind of important to know about. We've mapped it from the ground, from planes, and from satellites. It does not have a ring of magnetic north and a ring of magnetic south. It has points. A ring of magnets is not how a planetary magnetic field works anywhere in the solar system. It's just wrong. (sighs) Okay, deep breath. Moving on. Let's get back to his evidence. Uh, In one half of one paragraph, he gish gallops his way to concluding that scientists know nothing. Therefore, Earth is hollow. Here's the quote. Some other questions for the the solid-to-the-core advocates. Why are icebergs made of fresh water when the only water available at the poles, according to the conventional view, is seawater? Where does all the vegetation come from that is found inside these icebergs? Why is it that explorers who have ventured beyond the magnetic poles have found that the weather gets warmer and the seas become ice-free? Why do some animals and birds in the North Polar region, like the musk ox, migrate north in the winter? The conventional scientific view cannot explain these questions, but the Hollow Earth view can. This is really the same type of tactic that's used by young Earth creationists of just uh, throwing stuff out there and seeing what sticks. Mainstream science has perfectly reasonable answers to every single one of his questions, if he bothered to ask anyone or spend less than a minute searching. First, icebergs. They're made of fresh water. Simple. Icebergs are not made of frozen ocean water. They're made from glaciers that break off into the ocean. Glaciers are made from solidified snow that falls on land. Snow is fresh water. Therefore, icebergs are made of fresh water. Pretty simple. Second, vegetation inside of icebergs. See first. Plus, his explanation makes no sense. He wrote that freshwater rivers carry plants to the exterior from the interior of the planet, where they freeze in the salt water, making freshwater glaciers. Of course, to do this, he completely ignores the idea that water kind of mixes together really well, and so it would not be freshwater much longer. Third, the statement about explorers going beyond the magnetic poles. This is really meaningless. It it doesn't mean anything to go beyond a magnetic pole. It's like saying, I have gone beyond the top of a mountain. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, going beyond the poles could just mean that they went further south, towards a warmer region of the continent, or the ocean, or whatever. It's really just meaningless. Fourth, muskox migration in the winter. I had to look this one up, uh, but after 30 seconds of using the Googles, quote, Contrary to many species, the musk ox migrates from sheltered, moist lowlands in the summer to higher barren plateaus in the winter. The primary reason for this is food. The exposed plateaus do not accumulate snow due to the high winds, therefore making food easier to find. End quote. Okay, that kind of makes perfect sense to me, and no hollow planet with giant holes in it that's constantly covered by clouds are needed. Okay. I understand why Tom and Cecil, the hosts of the Cognitive Dissonance podcast, did not want to go into David's ridiculous Hollow Earth fantasies. Every bit of it is just unsubstantiated crazy, couched in scientician, double-bubble, toil-and-trouble 
pseudo-quasi-alternative nonsense. But, as always with this podcast, it's not necessarily the source material that's important. What I've tried to do is I've tried to use the material itself to point out why it's wrong to teach or demonstrate some aspect of science, or not necessarily even science, but the process that you take in science in order to show you something that you may not have known before. And hopefully I did that in at least a somewhat mildly, maybe even more than mildly entertaining way. There are several logical fallacies that I mentioned in this episode, including the argumentum ad populum, or the argument from authority, the argument against authority, and the argument from or appeal to ridicule. There was also a mechanism of fallacious reasoning that I haven't really discussed before, and I doubt that I'll be able to do it again in the near future, so for the logical fallacy segment, I'm going to discuss the Gish Gallop. The Gish Gallop is a mechanism of debate that was named for the now-deceased but formerly well-known young Earth creationist Dwayne Gish. During debates, Gish would, in pretty much literally one breath, state so many mistakes, half-truths, misunderstandings, or just outright lies about science to bolster his version of creationism that it would take his opponent a much, much longer time than the allotted time to address them. In so doing, he seemed as though he won the debates, but he also earned the term the Gish Gallop. In this episode, I mentioned it in the context of just a few sentences of David Icke's text where he quickly threw out several questions that he claimed mainstream science couldn't answer with a non-hollow Earth. If this were an actual debate, he would have probably been able to say all those questions in probably less than 20 seconds. I would have needed well over a minute or two to fully respond to them, and hence it would have been a Gish Gallop. It's because of the Gish Gallop that I've often said that I would only agree to debate certain pseudoscientists if there were a very strong debate moderator and topics were limited to a predetermined list. The predetermined list is to ensure that a Gish Gallop did not ensue. For the second of three additional segments in this episode, feedback. Related to the last regular episode's topic on modern flat earth thought, part one, Besides many people writing in on various social medias and feedback mechanisms that they were glad the podcast is back, which I do appreciate, I got some feedback that some parts of the episode were way too technical. So I wanted to take some time in this episode to discuss again Earth's horizon and curvature, as well as Earth's shape. But first, there are sometimes references or offhand statements that I make that really aren't hugely important to the main point, and I don't expect everyone to get it may not be as obvious if I were to reference science fiction here or there, like if I were to say that last episode was about as understandable as Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra to some listeners, it's not hugely important that everyone understand that reference, but it adds a little bit of depth for those that do. But if there are major sections that you don't understand, let me know, because it means that I'm not doing my hobby correctly. So first off, Earth's Curvature. The claim was basically a horizon claim, that if Earth is a ball instead of flat, then if something is far enough away, it should be below the horizon, and you wouldn't be able to see it from your location. In the clip that I played, they used the example of the Statue of Liberty. The problems with that example, and all the others that they tend to make, is that if you, yourself, are not 
on the ground, but above it, your horizon is now farther away. So if you're an average adult height, uh, you may be able to see maybe two miles away. If you're in a really, really flat, desolate area like, uh, I don't know, Kansas, uh, North Dakota, Siberia, or the interior of Australia. But if you do something as simple as you stand on a stepladder, then you can now see a mile farther because your horizon line is farther away. It's really increases quite substantially if you raise yourself up just a little bit. Where I live in the mountains of Colorado, I'm literally about 500 feet above, well, most of the surrounding area, so I can see quite far away if uh, there weren't mountains in some directions. But because I'm literally about um, 800, 900 feet above most of the surrounding area, uh, and because there's a dip in a valley, I can see a town pretty easily that's about 15 miles or about 22 kilometers or so away, even though Earth is a sphere as opposed to it being flat. If instead I were not above the surrounding plane, but I were just standing at eye level, I would not be able to see that town because it would now be below my horizon line. If you need to do an at-home demo for this, uh, you can get a large ball and tape a grain of rice to it laying the rice on its side, so you don't have to somehow get the rice to stay up. If you do this, now take a ruler and put one end of the ruler on top of the grain of rice and lay the edge of the ruler along the ball and see how far the ruler is in contact with the ball. Um, I would suspect that if you have one end on the grain of rice and then you rest the ruler on the ball, the ruler is going to hit the ball at maybe an eighth of an inch from the rice. Um, that would be, what, maybe two millimeters or so? Now, tape something like a grape to your ball and do the same thing. One end of the ruler should be on the top of the grape and then rest the uh, ruler on the ball. I would suspect at this point that if you're using maybe an average size grape, that the ball is going to touch the ruler at maybe an inch or so, which would be about two and a half, three centimeters or so. In other words, you can now see farther than you would have been able to if you were on top of the grain of rice as opposed to on top of the grape. That's really the idea behind the horizon line and behind uh, raising your elevation in order to see farther. There were some other problems with the example that was given about the Statue of Liberty, but really the big main point is that the things aren't as simple as they were claimed, and they left a lot of things out that let you see farther than you otherwise would think you'd be able to. The other part that was confusing was the shape of the planet. The claim was effectively a young Earth creationist one. If scientists don't know what they're talking about, then they're wrong and Earth is flat. In this case, he was talking about the shape of the planet and that it deviates from a perfect sphere and that the more we learn about it, the more little deviations we can tack on. I tried to give an example of more and more detail of a painting, but I lost the listener when I talked about the spherical harmonics and deviations from parts of parts and parts of parts and other parts, so let me try again. Let's say that you have really, really nice, smooth skin. It looks great, people tell you you should be a model, and you love how you look in photos. But if you look really closely at your skin, it's not smooth. It has perhaps tiny dimples, or it has uh, really thin, light hair follicles. In other words, as soon as you start getting into the details, it's no longer the perfect ideal. It's the same with Earth's shape. It's really close to a sphere, 
But if you look closer, it does bulge at the equator. But that bulge is really, really small relative to the size of the planet. It's just 0.3% of a deviation from a sphere due to that bulge. So Earth, when photographed from afar, could still do really, really well at a perfectly spherical planet beauty contest. But there's more. In the clip that I played, specifically they were complaining about deviations even from that. So instead of, say, uh, perfect hair follicles on your skin, if you look even closer, you see little teeny tiny deviations on those hair follicles from perfection. Uh, Maybe there's a little gash taken out of the side of one hair follicle. It's the same for Earth. It deviates only 0.3% from a perfect sphere to bulge in the middle. But we can take even closer, more detailed measurements. And when we do, we can see other things. Stuff like mountains or hills or valleys or little teeny tiny, tiny deviations from the idealized shape of the planet. And that's what I was talking about when I was talking about the shape of the planet. The point is that it's not that scientists keep making things up and therefore Earth is flat. It's that we simplify things to a different level for each audience that we talk to. Just like episode 145, it was pretty complicated, but I tried to simplify it here for those who found it confusing. This explanation that I've just given is sort of the Earth is a sphere level of complication. Last episode was Earth is a bioaxial ellipse that's 0.3% different from a perfect sphere level. I could have gone into even more detail in the last episode, but that doesn't mean that I would have been making it up. It's just not appropriate for the audience or for the topic that I was trying to talk about. So I hope for those of you who found episode 145 confusing that uh, this has cleared it up. And don't feel weird writing in and saying that something was confusing. Chances are, if you found it confusing, maybe a um, hundred other people did too, but they didn't write in. For the third additional segment on this podcast episode, I do want to take a few minutes at the end here to thank everyone for writing reviews of the podcast on iTunes uh, since I last mentioned people back in December of 2015. It's been a while. To the United States people, I want to thank Cactus Chef, Steve at Starsend, Randy Toad, Anti-Citizen, Dudeman6802, Jay Goey Matt, and just a listener, as well as uh, Dr. Brigman, where fully half of you were just in the last two weeks since I relaunched the podcast. I also want to thank listener Elwindil in Germany. I checked about a dozen other iTunes stores and found no new reviews, so if you are generous enough to write a review on a non-US iTunes store or on another website where I don't always check, which is all of them, please let me know, and hey, you might get a shout-out. With all that said, thanks for listening, and that's all till next time. That wraps up this topic for the 147th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, or the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me directly at pseudoastro. 
P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics or material, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then also tell friends, family, and random people that you'll never meet in real life. <laughs>